The Bold Intern presents the Best of Both podcast with your host, Vijay Solanki. So the idea behind the Best of Both podcasts is that the best knowledge in marketing and innovation is not all digital or all classical, but it's the right blend of both. So I'm on a mission to find accomplished leaders, especially those who have step-changed their careers, and ask them three questions. One, what did you learn early on in your career that you still use today? Two, what new thing have you learned in the last five years that you use in your daily, weekly work life? And three, what knowledge have you discarded? Because it just doesn't make sense anymore. I caught up with Jim Tonkin, who's based in Arizona, USA. Jim has been running a business called Healthy Brand Builders for over 30 years. He has a great story. He learned about the business and the beverage industry from his father's drinks company, where he worked literally in every function as a youngster. I mean, who gets to do that on a graduate program? But his epiphany came when he was on the beach in Hawaii, running for a Budweiser and picking up a local snack. He picked up the packet and rang the number on the back and went to see the founder. And that's how he got into finding and scaling innovative food and beverage companies. He's committed to healthy drinks and he got into that over 20 years ago. He's quite a guy. Um, I'm joined today by someone who is undoubtedly a legend of the beverage business. He's known in many circles as the beverage guru. Um, He has launched um, and developed multiple different beverage businesses over a career that spans probably at least how many years, Jim? 46. Incredible. yeah, I, I don't know. Well, I, I do know where to start and uh, we're going to get into this. But um, yeah, Jim Tonkin has been an absolute innovator. Um, I say that because he, he conceived the notion of pushing towards healthy drinks in the 80s and has been pioneering that space ever since. I had the, uh, we have the pleasure of uh, working together on a, functional oral health drink called Swirl It in Australia. But um, the purpose of this conversation is really to hear some of Jim's story and uh, to learn from him. So, Jim, it's amazing to see you again. How are you? I'm great, Vijay. Thank you. And really, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, invite me in um, to uh, your world. Uh, we're, we're a long ways apart from one another. I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona. And you're in lovely Sydney, so uh, through the the uh, wonders of the internet and Zoom, it's uh, it's really great to be with you. Yeah, now it's good to uh, see you again. We met uh, for the first time a few weeks ago because you were over here and um, you were bringing your wisdom to an incredible new Australian innovation called uh, Swirlit. How are you thinking about uh, all things Swirlit, Jim? Oh, I think it's uh, it's amazing. 
uh, one of the things that I love about it, and hopefully your your listeners will get a chance to try the product, particularly in, in Sydney, where it's beginning to show up at a lot of locations. Um, there's been no innovation in the oral health uh, space for a lot of years. Um, obviously, as dentistry has changed uh, over the years from um, drilling uh, and filling cavities uh, because of fluoride in the water, et cetera, that, that business has changed dramatically in cosmetics and um, uh, you know, dental plates and uh, new teeth and veneers and implants and all these other things have taken over in the place of the general dentistry that we all grew up with. And to have um, the individual that we are both working with come up with this concept of taking uh, functional water, if you will, and, and, uh, and putting specific additives to it uh, to help uh, protect the dental enamel and the the gums uh, of, of everyone's mouth, and, and more importantly, or as importantly, esophageal health, where many people suffer today from acid reflux. Um, I think it's a really, really great idea. Love the name, Swirl It, and, um, and I think we, uh, we only have one way to go, and that's up with this brand. Yeah, no, I think uh, it's going to be exciting times. But I want to focus this... Um podcast on you Jim I guess it'd be great to get a sense of um, why you've done what you've done and a little bit of your history and these days as well as um, pioneer beverage innovations and be great to hear a little bit about some of those um, you know you're just known as the as the guru in this space and you're writing articles for um, all sorts of uh, prestigious titles from the Wall Street Journal um, onwards. Um, but maybe, maybe we start back at the beginning. We were chatting earlier um, about your uh, upbringing. It'd be great to, to hear a bit about your story before you got into the beverage business. And we'll start there. Sure. Oh, I'd be glad to. Um, you know, I uh, grew up in a very middle-class home. Uh, I shared, I was born in San Francisco um, moved to Sacramento, which was like a bedroom community, the state of uh, California's capital. And I was there for a while. Then I went away to private high school and um, in the Carmel area where Pebble Beach is, if any of your listeners are golfers. Um, <clears throat> I participated on the golf team there for four years, which was amazing. And then I went on to college at um, a, a school in San Diego and then finished my undergraduate work at the University of Oregon in Eugene. And then for a very short period of time, I entered medical school and, and uh, found very quickly um, that it was tougher than I thought, number one. And number two, I kind of turned my back a little bit on what was a major part of my summer vacations and uh, Christmas breaks, et cetera, from the time I was 10 years old. And that was working in my father's business. And, and what and, made you join medical school? It's a, it's, a, it's a feature we have in common and that we both went and left medical school. Right. Why did you join? I just, you know, I had a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, adoration for physicians. And I just thought that I wanted to do something that would be giving back and healing. And never did I really know at that time that what I'd be doing is creating healthful beverages uh, and being parts of teams that are doing the same. And in that way, uh, changing the landscape of what we consume from a liquid perspective, um, right. I thought I could do it in healing patients. So at the end of the day, 
it was the right move for me. And uh, I think there were a few times in my life when I looked back and said, geez, it would be great to be in a white coat. But even though this is a podcast and not viewed, I am in a white shirt today. Uh, so, uh, yeah, in any case, it was a, it was a great decision, um, short uh, vector detour. And uh, I got back on track again um, in going and working for my father, uh, who had a very large uh, um manufacturing production facility and we also had the distribution rights to a multiple of major brands that you may be familiar with 7up a and w root beer uh, the crush line uh, welch's um, and and a, a whole cadre of others and so we not only produced the products in bottles and cans and distributed them on our own trucks uh, but we also manufactured them uh, for other people. So that's called contract packing. Right. And so I got a very early career exposure, if you will, to the world of contract packing in the mid to late seventies. And we were at the forefront of that whole industry. We actually at one point had the largest contract manufacturing facility in the Western United States. So, um, worked, worked for my dad for, for a, a number of years, over 10, and uh, went through a training program that lasted seven years. I worked in every facet of the business, production, quality control, sales department. I drove a route truck for three years. I learned how to drive a little pickup truck at 12. And I was driving semis, you know, the ones with uh, 16 or 18 gears um, uh, at, at 14. And so um, those days are, are long ago. And most people would never have that opportunity today just because of the laws and regulations but right. i was very blessed to to have a dad that really wanted me in the business and and thought it would be good for me to earn some money and work hard during my off uh, times from school so um uh, so on, in 19 on that uh, on yeah. just diving into that a little bit jim we asked three fundamental questions within this podcast and um you made some pretty significant decisions. You've got some experience and uh, insight um, in a way that's probably earlier and deeper than most people. Are there things from that time that you learned that are still with you today, that you still use today? And if so, what are they? It's a great question. And it caused me, when you posed it to me earlier, to kind of go through the reflection um, and uh, um, <clears throat> so let me share a few things. <clears throat> Sorry, I just drank a little water and got caught in my throat. Um, first of all, my father was an incredible, uh, methodical, very detailed, uh, obsessive, compulsive individual. And um, he was also what we called in those days a workaholic. Um, today, everybody seems to be a workaholic, and there aren't enough hours in a day to get everything done we need to do. So um, I learned a lot about um, putting your shoulder to the wheel and not uh, giving up on a task and to take seriously everything that was put on my plate. Uh, um, my dad uh, made me, uh, to his credit, work with every single manager in our business so that he didn't really have a hand in my growth. I was being tutel, the tutelage really came from the managers of each department, accounting, sales, marketing, quality assurance, production. Um, and how did, that, how did that go? Because they must have, I mean, whilst it must have been an incredible 360 experience, 
they will have known you're the boss's son. That must have been an interesting dynamic. Well, you obviously either have experience with that or you know other people that have. It's, it's an arduous task, and anyone that's been through the process will tell you, even if they have an incredibly close relationship with their father, um, that it's, it's hard. Uh, and to that point, everyone knows you're the boss's son. Uh, they, there's a limit to how far they're going to go to reprimand you, to tell you you did a lousy job. Uh, they maybe feel like they have to give you a hug and pat on the back and an attaboy uh, more often than they would somebody else in their employee. Um, so I had the, the, spool, the, the, sorry, the full spectrum of things thrown at me from people that did not want to work with me, who had that chip on their shoulder when they were reluctantly dragging me through their departments. And then I had others that I developed tremendous relationships with who gave everything to me and were unselfish and unwavering in their support of both my father and, and what, was a big, what was in store for me down the road, if you were, the bigger picture. So it was a great experience. And, um, you know, I think a few other things I took from that experience early were organization. Um, I was, uh, I, I wrote a ton in those days. I used to carry clipboards with notepads on it. I had little, little uh, spiral mini binders in my back pocket. I always had a pen. Um, I was writing, writing, writing constantly. And, and I used to review a lot of that stuff as well. And I found that when I wrote it the first time, I had a pretty good memory of it. But when I reviewed it the second time, it became part of my, my memory indelible. And, um, and I think to this, to this day, um, although I'm not writing near as much as I used to, and that's mostly because of the tools that we have at our disposal today with, you know, dictating machines and, and uh, I, I can type 110 words a minute. So, I mean, you know, you just go through these processes and, and you learn the shortcuts or you take advantage of the, uh, you know, what's, what's at hand. And you and I talked a little bit about the is the message. Is the message then the importance of reinforcement to, to help drive your learning? Yes. Yeah, totally. I, I, and I, and I think it's very important to be able to look back, um, you know, with a little bit of time in between those those uh, brief lookbacks over your shoulder, to just see what what course you're on and is it the one you projected? Um, I used to be very diligent about saying, okay, here's my plan for tw- for for 1988, and I would lay out like most people do their New Year's resolutions, and I would have a pretty doggone long chronicled hierarchical list. And I would try to get down that list and I'd, I'd have a check the box next to each one of them as I went through it. And I, I began to find out how good I really was at, at attaining these goals and also ticking the box. And I found um, more as I got older and, and the more I started doing it that I needed to do it less and less because it became more a part, it was, became autonomic. It was a part of my behavior um, most everything I took on, I completed as a task. And if I didn't, there was a reason for it. So um, I think I would find even at this late stage in my career that it was very, very difficult for me two years ago to admit that I was able to start culling 34 or a group of 34 clients from our portfolio into a number somewhere around 11 or 12 that are in our portfolio now. And that's just based on my my diligence 
uh, factor, the fact that I made a commitment to somebody. Uh, my word is my bond. I'm an old school person that way. I use contracts, but I don't really need them. Somebody doesn't like me or want me around anymore. The last thing I want to do is hang around. So the good news is I've had tremendous uh, success with longevity with my clients. And I attribute a lot of that to also my communication skill. Um, I'm a very diligent communicator. I believe in bringing everything out and hammering it out on the table. I like to listen. I think we learn a ton by listening. And by listening, it gives you the ability to change your persona, to change the face that, that you project. And if you're really listening and you're processing information, you learn every single day. Otherwise, you're just a machine spitting stuff out. I have no interest in being like that. And I think that's the only way you can, you, you can grow that, uh, that spider web that's in, you know, right underneath your skull. There's, there are a few little areas that I want to dive into, but I want to go back first. It's pretty unique. I mean, um, in, in my world, for example, you, you chose after graduation, you chose a career. And even if you joined a big organization, you'd get, you know, so I was lucky I joined Unilever and I was able to get training, but my training was 80% marketing and a tiny bit of exposure into finance and the supply chain and logistics, but you did everything, um, which makes you kind of unique, I reckon. Um, having done that kind of 360 journey of the, of the business, um, I'd be really interested if you're able to do this to kind of go back to your brain um, at that point. How did the functions kind of um, fit together and how would you prioritize them? If you look back now, would you say actually it's all manufacturing and, and marketing is just a piece of it or would you give them equal billing? So take your mind back to those early days. How did you look at the different functions and prioritize them? A great question, BJ. So. Um, first of all, if you think of, of manufacturing a product, there is a linear aspect to that manufacturing, and it starts at one end and it goes to the, to the other. And there aren't too many ways to go off that path, and most people that do fail. So reinventing the wheel is not really something that most people have an interest in doing, and there's no value proposition in doing it. That, that said, it doesn't mean that new innovation, new ways to do things, et cetera, cannot come into that process. And clearly, I've learned a lot of new ways to do things. But when you started an ideation session, as an example, somebody or a group of people come up with an idea and, and they beat the idea to death. And afterwards, they come up with a light bulb moment and the light bulb shines brightly. Well, how do you develop the lamp base and the lamp shade and the cord to plug it in to make sure that that light continues to burn? That is how the different components in, a, in building a beverage come together. So there's clearly the ideation. There's all of the active ingredients or raw materials that have to be assembled. Then there's a process to amalgamate them all together and then eventually put them into some kind of a vessel or container. And then that container gets packaged usually into a larger facility. And then it gets palletized and stored. And so that's kind of the, the, as I look backwards, that's the back of the house activity. Then everything that happens past that is, is consumer facing, if you will. So, um, you know, the trucks that then uh, carry the beverage uh, to, to market, the stores, the retail facilities that allow you the space to put your product on the shelf 
and then the consumer that pushes their basket down the aisles are hopefully going to find your product and in the end they take it home they unscrew the top or pop it pop it off or however they open the vessel and then consume it and that's that's the entire throughput channel um, I don't think to your question specifically there is one area that's more important than another and I'll give you a couple of examples if your quality assurance is off or wrong and when it calls for 4,000 gallons of sugar in a batch to make seven up and you only put 2,800 gallons, there's going to be an off taste. There's going to be a quality problem because the bricks is going to be uh, inaccurate. Um, there's a whole bunch of follow up or follow on things that will happen because of that mistake. So the quality assurance, the manufacturing, the care and nurturing of that process is as important as having the right marketing message on a brand in its finished form. The accounting or, or financial side of the business is no less important than those folks that sat around the table coming up with the concept originally. So it takes each one of these buckets of, uh, of business activity along this compendium to be contributory and successful in order for the outcome at the end to be successful. If you misstep along the way, you're just decreasing the potential for success. Okay. So I have always been a very um, concerted, definite, um, under the covers pursuer. And I look at every single aspect of the business before I get involved in it. It's the reason I chose to go to Melbourne to meet with the manufacturers of Swirlet when I came down there, I wanted a relationship with them. I wanted to see their plant. I wanted to understand their mentality, how their quality assurance worked, how they assembled the raw materials, who their QC manager was, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I do that in, in almost every single business that I get involved in. From A to Z, there's no shortcuts. And so you reckon that A to Z, which you still make use of today, would that probably have come from that early experience that you had where you went? and into every function. Absolutely. Right. No question about it. And right. to your point, I feel so blessed and so fortunate to have had the opportunity my father granted me um, to be able to go through all these facets of the business because I know very few people after being in this business for 46 years that have had the same kind of experience that I have. So that tells you that I, I am one of a very unique group of people yes you know, strategic consultants that really understand the big picture. Yeah, now I think of friends that are still 25 years at Coca-Cola or those sorts of organizations, and they've always been in marketing, or they might have done innovation, they might have done a stint here, but they've not sweated in every function. So there's some powerful learning around how new people coming into industry, like how could that be recreated is the kind of thought bubble that's going in, in, in my mind when traditional kind of graduate programs put you straight into a function most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. hundred percent. I want to, you've been incredible in the, the notion of, um, I mean, healthiness and, and, and healthy eating and healthy lifestyles being around, but you got into it in the eighties. What triggered that? Why did you, how did that happen? It's really interesting. I um, I was meeting with a lot of people when I left the soft drink business that I found after speaking with them had the same feeling I did 
that they did not see the value proposition in putting sugar and carbonated water together and flavor. And, and uh, because as we all know, if you look at the nutrition facts on a bottle of Coca-Cola, to your point, um, there's no nutrition in it. So um, back then, what I was trying to find is, is a way to produce something, and I didn't know at the time what it was going to be, healthier. And so in my quest to try to find this when I left the soft drink business, I was on the beach in Hawaii trying to figure out what I was going to do with myself. And I started eating. Uh, sorry? On the, on the beach in Hawaii. Is that where you always yes. go for your... Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's one of the greatest places in the world to clear your head and become very relaxed. And at the same time, start to crystallize thinking. And I always was doing a lot of reading. And, um, and at this point, I was actually laying on the beach and about every half hour, I would get up to go get another Budweiser from a little stand that was just up the beach. There's nothing better than being on a beach, as you know, with ice cold beer. Um, and I was eating these little one, one ounce uh, bags of um, Hawaiian style potato chips that were produced on the island of Maui, tiny little place back in 1987, uh, sorry, 1982 and not very populated either. And after five bags of these and five uh, Budweiser's, I decided to run up to my room, this was long before cell phones, and I, I called the number on the back of the bag and found out the plant was in Maui. I got on a small puddle jumper aircraft and I went to Maui and spent three days with the owner of this company and his 13 employees who were all family members. And I learned how to produce these chips and we became fast friends in three days. Wow. And I basically, because of my experience in the soft drink industry, working with high velocity, big numbers, big volume, uh, and a lot of people, I took what he did in a very small way, and I turned it into a large-scale um, manufacturing facility back on the mainland. And I did that for about a year and a half and ended up selling that brand to a large contract client uh, who was in the potato chip business. So from that experience, I, we produced the product with a very healthful oil. Just a minute, just a minute, Jim. You were on holiday, drinking Budweiser, eating a snack, and you thought, I'm gonna ring the number on the back of the packet and get yes. on a plane and meet the founder. Yes. Uh, I, I, I think, was I think the expression in, in, um, in millennial terms is WTF, isn't it? Who does yes. that? That's insane. Yes, nobody. I mean, you know, look, I had, um, I had a little money in Why? my pocket. Why would you do that? Because I was so intrigued. I'd never seen potato chips that were this thick. There was so much grease on the inside of the bag because, remember, I'm sitting out and it's like, uh, whatever, it's about uh, probably 28 to 30 degrees Celsius on the beach. And the, the, the sun was, was hitting those chips and basically degreasing de them onto the inside of this bag. So the, the greasier they got, the better they tasted. And tasting them with beer made it such a delightful experience that I said, I've never had anything like this with the skin of the potato already cooked onto it, not, not, not peeled off. And I went, these guys have come up with something and I got to see how they do it. So it was just... It was, you've heard of curiosity, killed the cat. Well, I bet I, I've had a lot more than nine lives, trust me. I, I, um, I, the curiosity is what got the better of me. I went over there and, and it, it started my first entrepreneurial business. How old were uh, you at the time? 32 years old. Right. 
and and what you then you made a, a connection and a relationship with the owner and his family and his employees and you create a joint venture how did how no, did you come from no I, didn't, uh, no I didn't what i did was after the third day i looked at his this gentleman's name was dewey kobayashi he was an expat from japan and um was the most delightful uh, old man at that time he was probably in his late 50s and um and i said dewey um i love what you're doing and i told him about my background in, in the soft drink business and everything i said look i have this harebrained idea that I want to go back and talk to a few of my friends and see if I can't do exactly what you're doing, but in a more automated way in a larger scale and share what you've done with, with Americans on the mainland. And his comment to me was, Jim, I love that. No one's that's so flattering. I really appreciate it. My, the goal, the, the only thing I'm, I'm asking you is do not come back to Hawaii and compete with me. And so on a handshake, I made that agreement with him. My lawyer, whatever, a month and a half later, sent him a note that we notarized and signed. That's what we used to do back then, a one-page agreement. And that was the end of it. I mean, I never saw him again, and uh, Maui Chips eventually got sold to Frito, the largest wow. player in the world. And, and so, um, you know, the, the, the moral of that story, and I know this is where you're going, so I'll cut you off at the pass, um, is, is you have to be able to follow your gut. It's the reason I left the soft drink business. I was making plenty of money. I had an amazing career path. My dad was going to retire at some point. I was going to own the business and run it, you know, with all these employees and all this stuff at my disposal. Um, my friends all thought I needed to go see a shrink, that, that how I could give that up. But, but the, the difference was this and my gut, my head and my gut were not connecting. And although my head said, yeah, you've got a maid, dude, keep up. I mean, you're 32, you're doing great. My gut was saying, I go to bed at night going, I hate this business. I hate this business. So the, the, the ultimate wisdom that I still carry with me today from those early days are, I will never prostitute myself. I will never do anything that I don't want to do. Now, that's not to say in my early consultative days, I didn't take clients on because I needed the income. And maybe I had them for a short period of time, six months or a year. I stomached what they were doing and, and then churned them out of my portfolio only to get another client. And, and when you're building and you're hungry, everybody has to go through that process. So I would never have changed any of that. It's the benefit that I've had at least the last 15, 20 years that I've been able to pick and choose the clients that I want to work with. The people, the products, and um, and the circumstances that I want to be associated with. I don't do business yeah. with crooks. You know, I don't, I, I, I size people up. I've made mistakes. I've miscued on individuals, uh, mostly early in my career. I've been taken advantage of a few times. God knows if you haven't been, you haven't learned anything. So at the end of the day, you know, you make these, hopefully you make these decisions and, and you make them the bad decisions early and you learn from every one of them. Because if you don't, you're going to continue to keep making them and you may make them into oblivion. I get the notion and it's a very powerful and meaningful one of love what you do and, and do what you love. Um, it's one thing doing that on a foundation of success but what's your advice for those, you know, we're going into a world where careers aren't for life. You made that call 
at a time when careers were for life and you had one and you went, nah, I'm not going to do that. Um, but then it often makes it more and more challenging. You said, we said at the beginning of this conversation that we're living in you know, busier and busier worlds, um, you know, mortgages and properties and families and the cost of all of that. And yet you still believe it's fundamentally important. And I agree with you, but what's the advice around how you stick with that? Because sometimes it's easier said than done. Oh, it's a, another really good um, kind of perspective that you bring. I, um, I believe that everything that's worth doing is worth doing, which means it takes time and it's typically harder than you think. And it's going to cost more than you think. And, um, you know, putting the T-square together, which is what I like to do often, which is basically putting the positives on one side and the negatives on the other. In everything you do, in every, every option in life, I, I went with my oldest son today. He's looking for a new car. And I spent a few hours at the car dealership with him. And, you know, I mean, you know how it is when you go shop for a car. You have an idea of what you want, but you're going to have somebody else in the showroom that's going to be telling you what you need. And they're going to be driving you nuts until they can sell you that the vehicle that they want you to buy at the price they want to sell it to you for. So understanding the parameters around things that you can do, staying within your lane, understanding that you can't be everything to everybody all the time. Um, one of the things that I learned early, and I think it's, it's uh, remained with me forever, is you have to be prepared to make mistakes. And being an entrepreneur and being somebody that has not followed within the guidelines of general uh, uh, long-term business practice, uh, i.e., to your point, working for one company in my whole life, um, no one does that anymore today. Nobody. I mean, look at Bill Gates. You know, I mean, yes, he stayed within Microsoft for all of his career, but look at the things he's done since he left Microsoft. So no matter how old you are, um, you're going to continue to do things and contribute in different ways once you get to the point where you've had a modicum of success and God forbid you should have a lot of success. You're only celebrating that success because you're looking backwards and going, you know, the days that I didn't sleep and the days I was sick because I overworked and, and the time I stayed away from my family or I wasn't there for my, this one's birthday or that one's anniversary, or I missed this dinner because I was doing something that I felt was important for a client. All those things become relevant when you, when you gain the wisdom and you move a little further down that time compendium. Nothing can push that process. Success does not come overnight. Um, their success also very typically does not happen by accident. There are a lot of hardships that take place between that ideation process and a finished product uh, by somebody buying your product and, and a check shows up. Um, the, the dreaming about it ain't going to get there. It's important to have the dreams, but you need to understand what the track looks like, how long it is, how wide it is, how loose or hard it is to, to run it. Um, who are your competitors? I mean, horse racing is a fun thing to watch for a reason. And, and you know, so, I mean, if you look at these kind of metaphoric um, uh, uh, e equivalents, I, I love to, to pick those because oftentimes people try to make life harder than it is. And it's hard enough as it is, to your point. <coughs> we all have our monthly overheads and our children to feed and our, and, and in this stage, you know, our parents to feed oftentimes where the cycle goes all the way around. Right. 
and we're living longer and therefore requires a lot more uh, energy and attention and, and a better life. And that was one of the things that drove me to the healthier side of things. I kept thinking to myself, am I going to be 55 years old and looking at the potential of retirement after being in this business for 30 or 35 years, drinking carbonated soft drinks and feeling good about that and being healthy at the same time? And my answer every time was, hell no. Right. And that you, is- You made that made, call in the 80s. I um, did. What, can, can you pick out um, so the, the innovations, the two or three innovations from then to now um, that gave you not necessarily the most success, but the most kind of learning, the most insight? I mean, which of those projects, and I know there have been so many um, different types of healthy beverage and functional beverage that you've either supported or created. But looking back, yeah, what, what the, where were the, which products gave you the most and which projects gave you the most insight, the most learning? So I, I think um, to answer that question, one has to be incredibly honest. And I will tell you that over 2,000 uh, brands that we've created uh, in, in the 33 years we've been doing this strategic consulting, um, I have learned a ton from the graveyard, from the, the byproduct of misapplication, underfunding, mismanagement, um, products with uh, foresight of relevance, but the consumer said, nope, no relevance. Those are things that when you, particularly in the early stages of trying to develop a business and a consultancy, it's hard to have failure. And um, particularly when you're putting lots of hours and hard work and, and everything into building something out of nothing. Just think of planting seeds, you know, in a, in a row of corn, right? <coughs> it's nothing but dirt and a place for the water to go around that, that pile and a bunch of seedlings that go into the ground. And it isn't until eight months later, you have six foot tall stalks that yield these beautiful yellow ears of corn. But, you know, if God says, forget that, I'm going to devastate this land with um, a hurricane and an overabundance of water and flood the crap out of this place. There ain't going to be no corn. Yeah. So, you know, what do you do with those situations? I think many times as people fail in life, if they don't learn something from that failure, they, they don't, they're not able to stand taller the next time and say, you know what, I was there once before. So let me give you an example of one company that I was loosely involved in but whom I have probably the most utmost respect on how they handled a catastrophe. It's a company in the U.S. called Odwala. Odwala was one of the first juice companies um, to make smoothies and put them in prepackaged containers and sell them at retail. Yep. Started as an orange juice, tangerine, grapefruit, typical juice, regular juice companies packaged. And then they got into these smoothies, et cetera. Well, uh, this company came out of Northern California where a lot of innovation comes from. And in the early 80s, um, they were actually not pasteurizing, which means not heat treating, fresh squeezed juice. So, you, so think of squeezing the oranges, squeezing the grapefruits in its raw form, right, and then putting it into a bottle, putting a top on it, put a label on it, and keep it refrigerated and send it to the store. Well, 
there could be all sorts of bacteria in that fruit. There could be bacteria in the bottle. There could be bacteria in the hands that are squeezing the fruit, and on and on and on. There was a, 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 a situation that happened in Seattle, Washington, where multiple people died from the ingestion of this juice because it was not pasteurized. When <laughs> it's called E. coli. Yeah, right. E. coli is a bacterial breakout that happens all over the world, and, and it happens much less now than it used to before all the good manufacturing practices became uh, a way of doing business. And that, that d the deaths that occurred from that and over 150 additional illnesses that happened with people didn't, didn't die but ended up in the hospital um, caused this company to go into a crisis mode. And what they, how they dealt with it is textbook. They hired an outside PR firm that, that was, did nothing but work with companies in crisis. So they were very used to handling death. They were used to insurance settlements. They were used to dealing with retailers and how to quell uh, a conversation and a process. And it was, it was an amazing thing for me to be on the sidelines as a board advisor and watch this company go through this process. And in the end, <coughs> the insurance settlements were paid within two weeks. So all those people hadn't even gone through their griefing cycle yet. And they'd already had millions of dollars in some cases in their bank account. That goes a long ways, not in bringing back somebody that passed away, but in mitigating what could have become a much deeper spiral of, of loss. And it showed that company's compassion and the fact that they didn't do this advertently. It was an inadvertent thing. And as a result, it changed an entire industry. There's no such thing as unpasteurized juice any longer. So that was a major learning in my life um, about how to handle a crisis, how a management team comes together and all works together pulling that wagon with six or eight horses all going in the same direction. And quickly and uniformly and with the same objective, take care of the customer, take care of the human beings that sacrificed and were sacrificed, the product will follow. Whatever happens, good, bad, or indifferent, we're going to do the best we can to save it. And in the end, the company was sold to Coca-Cola. Wow. Okay. So there's a story that is uh, pretty hard to, um, uh, pretty hard to, um, to, to but find. What, I mean, it's a, it's a tough story and it's a tragic story. But what are the what are the lessons? I mean, there's a lesson that there's a very practical lesson around manufacturing process and pasteurization. Is there is it around teamwork? Because I've seen crisis a couple of times before. For actually, once in in Unilever and once in a in a in a food company. And there's a part of me that feels, wow, it shouldn't take um, crisis for a for a business to come together like this. Did it? So I'll be interested in your take on that point and also the before and after, um, how it changed the business. Yeah, two, two things. First, the knowledge of understanding when professionals come to the plate, you need to listen. When this company came in that was a crisis management public relations firm, we gave them the keys and we said, you, you own this. We're paying you. You're the masters of it. 
make this business sustain itself. And we followed them like, you know, like um, putting seeds or, or, you know, like mice will follow cheese. Uh, and, and because we gave up the control factor of because we were in management, we knew best. We followed their lead. We did every single thing they told us to. And because of that, there was unanimity, there was agreement, there was learning, and we followed the directions of the experts. And so, you know, if you fast forward that 40 years, 35 years, um, what I'm offering today at my late stage in, in the development is the wisdom of having been through things like that this before and of seeing how people react the right way. Um, and clearly, I would know if people are reacting the wrong way. And we've seen many companies who have produced lousy product in the market. Uh, God forbid people got sick, but their companies failed. They died because consumers ran away. They had no idea how to, com how to communicate with their customers. And now, in living in this 24-7 news cycle, um, I know everything that happens in Sydney. When I'm awake and you're asleep, I know it before you and vice versa. So we're living in the world now where there's no secrets. There's no blankets you can pull up or, you know, the covers you can pull up. Everything is exposed all the time. Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat. LinkedIn, blah, blah, that's, blah. That's interesting. Actually, one thing I just want to check, and um, is it five past? It is. Ten. It's five Are you past good for five. Uh, go ahead. Are you good for another 10 minutes? Yes, I am. There's somebody that's supposed to be calling me from Japan. So okay. he hasn't called yet uh, for some reason. So I'm just going to keep going. And uh, if you give me, what, five to seven minutes, we'll tailor a, a close and, and we'll, we'll uh, get you on your horse to start your Excellent. day. Well, um, so obviously that the second fundamental question we ask in the podcast, the new things that we've, that you've learned and clearly you've had experiences like the Adela one, um, which, uh, I don't know what year that occurred in your, I guess you'll share in a, in a mo. Um, I'm interested in others like that, that have changed your thinking and you've touched on a on a, another point, which is the twenty four seven news agenda, and in a always on transparent social media world, how that's changed um, business, particularly in the in the beverage space. How that's changed not just manufacturing and how you run those businesses, but also the impact it might have on things like innovation. Yeah, dramatically, it's changed. Um, <clears throat> I have been involved in other things like the Oduala, uh situation, but never one that, that where deaths occurred. And <clears throat> fortunately, uh, every one that we went through, we, we got to a successful outcome. Um, uh, companies didn't die, but <clears throat> again, either did people. So at the end of the day, um, you know, quality assurance is so important and I'm constantly stressing it. And I, I really believe it's without that, if your product is not consistent, if you have McDonald's hamburger in Sydney, Melbourne, Fiji, the UK, or Scottsdale, Arizona, they all taste exactly the same. So <clears throat> there's a reason for that. And if you know much about a company like McDonald's, you know how voracious they are about consistency, quality, and quality assurance, and having all the protocols in, in place, supply chain, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, I'm a big believer in not going down a road to reinvent the wheel every time, 
but to take a chapter from other people's books and be able to apply that and therefore maybe get to an end zone quicker, um, but not foreshortening necessarily any of the critical steps. So not foreshortening quality assurance and, and things like that. So fast forwarding that commentary, years ago, and, and clearly when you were in your early stages of your career at Unilever, there was a set of protocols that you used in order to message the consumer about anything that you were selling. And most of it took the form of print, media, maybe a billboard campaign, maybe a television ad if you had enough money, or radio. Those were the major medias that we all used and used regularly. The bigger brands used more of it. Uh, smaller brands couldn't afford it. <clears throat> so through that process, um, you know, you, you're, you're turning people on one at a time, or if there's a billboard on the corner of uh, X and Y Street, uh, the 50,000 people every two days that see that billboard may or may not be influenced to purchase the product. They may see the name or the package later, and you're hopeful that they'll remember it at the supermarket. Today, <clears throat> we're in a totally different environment. Back to my 24-7 news cycle, we're in a 24-7 communication cycle. So if I want to talk to VJ, and I want to talk to you right now, I can get on the cell phone and call you immediately. And if you don't answer the cell phone, I'll leave you three messages. Then I will text you four times. And then I may call your neighbor because I can find him on Google. And I'll wake him up and he could come over to your house <clears throat> and wake you up. The point is, um, there are many, many ways to get in touch with people these days. And that, therefore, translates into the, the way we get to consumers when we're product merchants. And it is an amazing platform that we are involved in today, using either one or a multiple of these platforms to be able to get information to consumers um, is so uh, important. And <clears throat> because consumers are picking and choosing the method or platform that they choose, uh, for themselves, to get educated on, to purchase product from, to get their education from. You know, some people use Google, some people use Yahoo, some people use, and so on and so on. Um, so you have to kind of be omnipresent, right? And it's a lot less expensive today to be omnipresent. You know, you can put $5 a day behind a, a Facebook ad, and you're going to get to a whole bunch of people in your network. So, you know, in deference to spending $100,000 to do a, a B-roll of a film for a television ad and then spend $500,000 buying the time nationally, you know, <clears throat> those numbers are irrelevant today, even though we still do advertising on television, radio advertising, the old forms, print. Do you feel that do you feel that, that accelerates? Um, innovation and, and the experimentation part of innovation? Does it mean that it's easier to test consumer propositions because you only need the 50 bucks or 100 bucks and then you get the feedback loop, then you can make adjustments to the mix? Is yes, of course. Uh, the, the obvious answer is yes. The, the question though is, and you and I have had this discussion before, it's qualitative in deference to quantitative. So if all you're looking for is big numbers, that's one thing. If you're looking for information you can use that's valid, that is validating, then you have to look on the qualitative side. And I happen to be one that is more focused on the qualitative side than more on the qualitative. And, and uh, 
Uh, so from that perspective, I, I, I think you can't put the genie back in the box. It is what it is. Uh, social media is here to stay no matter what you use to get your information. If it's on LinkedIn, if it's whatever, you're going to continue to use those sources till they become irrelevant to you until the next shiny penny shows up. And, and, and because of that, we have become universally connected. I know Tonkins all over the world. I never thought the name that anybody ever had that name, right? You know how many of your brethren are around the world? You probably do now because we have Ancestry.com and we have 23andMe. So I know what my chromosomal makeup is. I know why this ear looks different than this one. Uh, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, it, it is, we are just in this amazing morass of data that is being thrown at us or available for us to look at regularly. And in conversation, I get said in, in that in, in all of that data um, and, and in the fact we can do all of that, we can get numbers very, very quickly. I always think of it as you can you can kind of get the what, but you can't get the why. So um, does that mean and I'm going back to the, the multiple innovations that you've developed that and, and one of the questions around, you know, what methodologies have stayed the same through your career? Are you saying that things like kind of focus groups research and that qualitative insight, has that been consistent then in terms of um, beverage innovation? Yes, I think focus groups have always been a part of major innovation. I will tell you all the big companies use them and regularly and very uh, vigilantly. Um, I, I will say though, personally, um, because I'm on the entrepreneurial side of, of development oftentimes with small pre-revenue companies, um, taking the time to go through a general, you know, 60 or 80 person focus group uh, where you might have four focus groups uh, at different intervals and you're trying to get different demos and psychographic uh, analytics out of data. Um, I've always kind of been the kind of uh, a little bit of a skeptic uh, uh, based on saying, you know, I can develop a whole set of protocols that will get me what I'm looking for at the end of this focus group because I'm, I'm smart enough to do that. And so that gives me a, a moment of pause. But on the other hand, being able to go onto SurveyMonkey and for very little money to query a thousand people, you're going to get a lot of information. And, and, you know, if a lot of it looks the same, you probably got something there. So, I mean, and, and to your point before, you can get that in a week or a day, depending upon how fast you want it. So, you know, <clears throat> we're just in a speed to know and a need to know. Uh, environment now and those that know how to operate at hyper speed warp speed whatever if you're a Star Wars fan um, it, you you uh, you're gonna be ahead of the game and um, you know it's why it takes Pepsi and Coke two to two and a half years to develop a line of innovation and that's just one or two new flavors in a line that's already do you know how long it took them to put vanilla orange coke into the market I mean vanilla is like the most known flavor in the world. Who doesn't like vanilla? And orange is one of the top three flavors known to man. So if you've ever thought about putting orange and vanilla in with a cola, it makes all the sense in the world. But I, it still took them two and a half years to go through all the R&D, the quality assurance, buy-in from the marketing department, get the salespeople to get on board and say, yes, we think this is a value add. Uh, you know, and then the whole supply chain piece. So, 
you know, I'm the kind of guy that says, I'm in ideation on Monday. I'm ordering raw materials in two weeks. Right. That's, my, that's my life. Right. And that's the kind of stuff that I do. And because I have a very large Rolodex now, I can help companies get through those processes very quickly and succinctly. I can get them to the right players at the right price, the right legal counsel, the right financing partners, all of those kinds of things. And that's what I'm giving back in the last 15 years of my career, which I didn't have at the first 15. It's very clear, Jim, that there's right from those early days, there's a, there's a method and a methodology and a set of expertise across the entire value chain. Um, you know, answering and summarizing some of the first question. I, I wonder with the, with the second one, clearly, you, you know, you've embraced technology. You've not lost uh, your entrepreneurial mindset, but talking about SurveyMonkey or talking about feedback through um, social media, um, so there are some new things that you've been talking about. I want to finish off on that third question, which is being here and now, when you look back, are there things that might have served you well in the early part of your career um, that you now go, nah, these things made sense in the 80s or the 90s or even the early noughties, but they make no sense now. It could be questions, a framework, what, whatever it is. Is there anything that springs to mind that you've, yeah, th it, that's a great question, VJ. So let, let me just um, kind of draw a little synopsis here. Um, one of the things that men are not very good at doing is sharing. And God must have made it this way on purpose. We're emotionally different than our counterparts. And because of that, um, it took me a lot of years to understand how to build relationships with men. Men are not inherently open, um, particularly those in the business world are very um, closed about certain things that they do and or don't do. And so learning how to extract that information and build friendships with people in addition to the business relationship is something I wish I had learned earlier in my career. I watched and marveled how other people I thought or saw have those kinds of relationships. I learned how to play golf at an early age. And as a metaphor, what I learned carrying two bags at 10 or 11 years old on a Saturday morning around 18 holes was the camaraderie and the ability to jab one another and the ability for a really good golfer to play with a crappy one. But at the end of that round, they, they talked about everything under the sun, including the, what the mayor did yesterday, highlights on the, in the newspaper, what their wife did or didn't do, what their girlfriend is doing, what the children are doing, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so these, these ways that we are learning to talk to one another, and I want to, I want to bring this into today's world to, to conclude this thought. I, I still use that today. I wish I had started doing it earlier because having friends is a really important thing. And knowing what a true friend is, is very different than thinking you have a friend. And you don't usually find out if you have them until a crisis occurs or something that is out of the norm and you find out who comes to the plate. I am blessed in my life. Um, I've had many friends be there for me as I have been for them in my life. And I've worked really hard at it. I left the Bay Area to move to Scottsdale 20 years ago. I didn't know one person in Scottsdale, Arizona. I had to build a whole new friendship circle, and then I was traveling all over the globe. So for me, I, I already know 
that, that that's part of my makeup. And I, I'm an extroverted person. I love being with people. I love listening. I love sharing. I love cultural heritage. I love sharing that stuff. And so I'm an inquisitive person who will never stop asking questions and hopefully have an insatiable appetite to learn. On the other hand, talking for a second about the speed of knowledge that we're, we're operating in today with what our children and their children are going to be doing with everything in hyperdrive. I do believe we're losing some things. We're losing some things relative to the listening ability. The written word is becoming incredibly convoluted and abbreviated. And in some ways, I believe we're losing the value proposition of good speech and good communication ability. And, be, and, and I'm, I'm faulting texting and email and all sorts of other things that shroud the real humanity that, that created them. I understand the usability and I understand the friendliness of them and the intent. But from my viewpoint, the intent was to speed up communication, not to change it. Because you and I are talking face to face right now. I can see the expressions on your face. You can see mine. Your listeners can hear the inflection in my voice. They know when I'm happy, when I'm sad, when I'm in, emphasizing a point or de-emphasizing. Um, those things are so important to have. A text message has none of it. An emoji, frankly, I'm sorry, does not take the place of how I really feel and how I can communicate that. Nothing will take the place of picking up the phone and calling your aged mother on a Sunday. So, you know, I, I don't know how we put that genie back in the box, but it's a big concern of mine. Mm. And um, I, although, I, I, as you said, I've embraced technology because I'm a global traveler, I've had to do it. Um, but, but I'm very mindful of the fact that if I really want something to be communicated to somebody, I am picking up the phone and I'm calling them. And I'm going to make sure they know exactly what I'm saying. And if they don't, I'll know it in their voice. And God forbid I could get on a Skype or a Zoom call and I can see their face. Brilliant. Yeah. I guess my take out there is um, human to human connection becomes even more important. Whilst at the same time, look, technology is enabling us to record from two different continents. So there's some value in that. Yes, um, indeed. Jim, uh, thank you so much. There's, there's more of these. I can feel them. We've barely scratched <laughs> the surface. But um, thank you so much for giving up some, some time for giving us insight into your early experiences, your father's business, and how that shaped you. Um, I won't forget about the importance of going to Hawaii and drinking Budweiser and uh, how you might discover your next entrepreneurial venture. Um, and of course, the work you've been doing over the last 20 plus years in driving um, new innovations and particularly driving healthy drink development. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a pleasure. I know we'll continue to work together on all things Swirl It and uh, look forward to speaking to you again and seeing you again really soon. My humblest appreciation. Thanks for reaching out, VJ. I can tell you the feeling is 10 times uh, yours from my vantage point. I think you're a brilliant guy. I think Swirlit is incredibly fortunate to have you as both an investor and the, and, and the marketing genius behind the brand. Uh, I'm expecting to continue my relationship with you, you there and clearly far beyond. So thank you for, for reaching out. We'll talk soon again. All the very best. Cheers, Jim. Cheers. 
You've been listening to the Best of Both podcast from The Bold Intern. If these ideas resonate with you, check out more Bold Intern content on VJ's LinkedIn page.